0: Good morning. So glad uh, to get to share with you this morning. My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. I Like coffee, kickball champion, all that stuff. And uh... yeah, no, it's kind of lame. Uh... <laughs> no, super, super privileged to get to share with you from God's word this morning. Um, we're gonna be a couple different places. We're gonna start in Mark. So if you want to go ahead and turn over to the book of Mark, the very end of it, um, I'll tell you what page it is. Probably 853 if you're if you're rocking the ESV. Uh, If you need a Bible and would like to borrow one from us, if you just raise your hands, our ushers would love to let you borrow one, Uh, and you're more than happy to uh, more than welcome to keep that copy. If you don't own a copy of God's Word and would like one, feel free to keep this as your own. Uh, And again, that's page 853, Mark 16. Uh, we essentially finished our, our uh, study of the book of Mark last week. As most of you know, we've been uh, studying this gospel together, and uh, last week was the 53rd sermon. So a little over a year, if you count every single week that we uh, studied Mark's gospel. Of course, we took some breaks uh, for the Worth Initiative last year and for Christmas last year. So it took us about a year and a half, uh, but it was 53 sermons all together. And, uh, and Chris touched on something in that last chapter. Uh, there's a bit of um, discussion about where exactly Mark ends. And he alluded to the fact that this week I was going to get to talk to you guys about that. So we're going to explore uh, the, the longer and the shorter endings of Mark. Uh, but really the bigger question I want to explore with you today is, is this. Is how do we, in light of that and manuscript differences and things like that, how do we know... That what we have is is what we should have. How do we how do we know that the that the canon of scripture that the sixty six books that are in this are are the right Bible? How did it get here to us? How did we how did we come to be in possession uh, not of this physical copy but of of the Bible as we know it in twenty nineteen? How did how did we know that the thirty nine books in the Old Testament and the twenty seven books in the New Testament are the the right books on what we should have, and how can we know that it's reliable and that it really is God's Word? And so I want to really explore that topic with you, and then I want to end the sermon by talking about if this is indeed God's Word, and we do believe that it is here at 24 Church, and we believe it's the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, for my life, Word of God to me, um, then how should that affect us and change us? What does that mean for our lives if this isn't true and indeed God's word. So this may be a bit of a weird sermon. It may kind of feel like lecture at the beginning and then, and then a little sermon at the end. Uh, that's just the only way I know how to divide it up. So anyway, that's where we're going. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us, and we'll jump in. Holy Spirit, we do believe that you're in our midst because uh, we are gathered in the name of Jesus together. And we believe that you love to be with us and to help us to see Jesus plainly. And so we pray that you continue what you've already started through through singing. And now through the reading of this word and the study of this word, we pray that you would draw us to Jesus and that you would help us to see him plainly and that you would speak powerfully to us. Lord, help us uh, to learn this morning. And Lord, help me not to make any mistakes, but to speak clearly the way that I ought to speak. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that you would give us a deep, profound hunger for the word of God and that you would help us to rely upon it and to believe it and to trust it and to find you in it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we're just going to jump right in. Uh, if you're in Mark 16, again... Um, if you just look, let's start at, go ahead and start at verse 6. So Mark 16, 6, um, this is how it ends, this book of Mark. Which again, we believe this is Peter's account written by Mark of Jesus and who he is. And it says, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. This is an angel. Uh, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then you'll notice uh, there's brackets here in most translations, and it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. So we just read through 8, and then there's that, and that's, that's kind of... Oh, okay, didn't see that coming. And then you got 9 through 20, uh, which some manuscripts don't contain. And if you look and read the footnote in the ESV under that, uh, the footnote says this. It says some manuscript, I'm a footnote reader, I, I recommend it. Um, it says some manuscripts in the book with 16.8. Others include verses 9 through 20. Immediately after verse 8, at least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. Some manuscripts include... After verse 8, the following, but they reported briefly to Peter. So these would be the women. They reported briefly to Peter and those who were with him uh, all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. These manuscripts then continue with verses 9 through 20. So they insert that extra. Uh, and that's, that's confusing. Uh, if you have an NIV, um, it says... The most, it just bracket after verse 8, the most reliable and early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. If you read a New American Standard, it has it in there, but also in brackets, 9 through 20 are also in brackets. And the footnote says a few late manuscripts and versions contain this paragraph, usually after verse 8. A few have it at the end of the chapter. If you read an older translation like the King James Version, it's just in there. So what's going on? What gives? Why, what's going on here, Mark? So we'll, we'll start there, and then we'll spread and talk more about the canon. Um, the first thing that might be obvious, but maybe you've never thought about this before, is that we don't have any original copies from the person that wrote them. Have you ever thought about that? We don't have the papyrus that Mark physically touched, and wrote with his own pen. It's perished history. Doesn't exist anymore. We don't have the copy of Romans that the Apostle Paul wrote, the one that he touched, the paper that he touched. I don't don't know why God chose in his providence not to preserve any of that. Maybe because we would have worshipped pieces of paper. Maybe because lands were invaded and things were burned. We don't know. But we don't have a single manuscript that's the first version in any of our Bible. What we do have is we have copies. And we have um, some over 58. This is what Wikipedia said because it was the easiest way to get this. Parts of the New Testament have been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work. So we have more copies of the Bible than any other ancient work. Uh, There are over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in various other languages. That's what we got. So this reminded me of this video I recently watched uh, on YouTube. There's this guy, Rick Beato, that a bunch of us have been watching. He's He's a music producer, and now he's become a YouTube star. And he does a bunch of these cool things where he'll be like, what makes this song great? And he'll talk about you know, why Allison Chains is amazing or, or whatever, you know, and he'll pick a song every, every week. But he does, he comments on a lot of things. And he, he did this video about this fire that happened in 2008 at the Universal Music Group. And here's, here's what it just says under like the, in the, under the video. You know, the title of the video is UMG Fire and Why You Should Be Outraged. That's the name of the video. And here's what it says. And basically what he talks about in that video The Universal Music Fire of 2008, so Universal Music Group had this huge fire in one of their big buildings in 2008, and it destroyed over 500,000 songs and the legacies of thousands of artists. The the list uh, published by the Times covers a broad spectrum of musical acts and cultural icons. So if you know anything about recording, and I know just enough to be dangerous, but but when they're recording in a studio, especially before the advent of where computers really took over, you're recording everything onto analog tape, and it's really high quality, big, two-inch analog tape. And if you're going to remaster, let's say Led Zeppelin, you, you go back and you get the original masters of Zeppelin. And when you produce, when you see remastered that's out now, what they usually that means is they went back to that two-inch tape and they remastered it from the originals, So that tape has not been compressed and EQ'd the way that you normally hear, and they re-EQ it and remaster it. So, you know, hopefully you get the best thing possible, right? So the masters are extremely important in the music biz. And in 2008, this fire burned a ton of masters. Listen to all the masters that it destroyed. Modern megastars such as 50 Cent, Nirvana, Tupac Shakur, Mary J. Blige, Nine Inch Nails, Common, Elton John, No Doubt, Beck, R.E.M., Janet Jackson, Sheryl Crow, and Guns N' Roses share space with musical pioneers like Billie Holiday, Muddy Waters, Bing Crosby, Aretha Franklin, Slim Harpo, and B.B. King, Masters, Phew. gone. And UMG's tried to shut that up as much as possible. In fact, now they're remastering from not Masters, but selling it as Remasters, which is its own whole ordeal, right? Now, that, that's kind of the situation we're in the Bible. We don't know why we don't have the originals, originals, but we got copies of the originals. And so what happened most likely back in the day is, is Mark pins this gospel, right, from the stories of Peter, firsthand account. This is who it is. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did and then they pass it along to a New Testament church. Maybe, New, maybe the Jerusalem church had it first. That's a pretty good guess, but they wanted a copy in Corinth. And so Corinth, maybe they take it to Corinth, and somebody in Corinth, he copies down, some scribe copies down an exact copy of Mark, and they keep that, and they send the original back to Jerusalem, let's say. Galatia wants a copy. So then they get a copy I don't know if it's from the Jerusalem copy or for the 1 Corinthians copy the Corinth copy, but then they copy and they have an exact copy of God's Word. And this is how it went about. And that's how we got all these copies of at 5,800 that are still around copies. Some date from as early as like 125, 135 A.D., New Testament. Okay? And so that's how we got to be, you know, before computers and before photocopying, and this is how you got a copy of God's Word. But they're copies. Um, and because we're human, and people, sometimes, I noticed this yesterday when I was filling out the bracket for kickball, I spelled street, the main street M-C. At one point, I wrote down Main S-T-R-E-T, S-T-R-E-T and felt stupid later when I said, oh, I wrote street wrong. But things like that happen. And so here's what Bruce Metzger says, uh, talking about, uh, minor variations between copies. He says, in evaluating the significance of, um, no, 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 not that, uh, Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard, that's the, he says, other mechanical errors occurred. Letters, words, or whole lines were accidentally omitted or repeated as the scribe's eye jumped back to the wrong place. And the text being copied, you're looking back and forth, you're, oh, and you accidentally copy a line twice or something like that, uh, he says spelling variations or mistakes intruded when two uh, adjacent letters were reversed or when one letter was substituted for another that was similar in appearance. Oops, meant to write an A, wrote an E. All this Greek, you know, but you understand what I mean. Um, but most of these errors are trivial, detectable, and correctable and do not significantly affect the overall meaning of the larger passages in which they appear. So as, as modern-day scholars are taking all these 5,800 uh, copies and putting them together, they're comparing. You know, okay, this mark says this, 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 and this mark says this, and this mark says this, and I it pretty much agrees all the way across. The same way that you would expect, even though you don't have a Nirvana master anymore, the CD is a pretty darn good copy of what it sounded like, you know? And so you can be relatively certain, like this is, this is what was written. And this was a spelling mistake, but that's easy to see there's a spelling mistake because one has that spelling mistake and 400 others don't. So we're going to go with the 400 others. And this whole process is the process of textual criticism. And modern scholars that are much smarter than you or I are comparing all these bad boys. And how we get our modern translations is there are now uh, modern translations of, of Greek and Hebrew, Greek, the New Testament, Hebrew, Old Testament, that are that are the collation of all the different manuscripts. And so you can actually go buy a Greek New Testament, and you can buy a Hebrew Old Testament. And then our modern English translations are a translation of those original autographs. And that's how we get the Bible we read. Okay? Um, if you, just a couple other things that are thrown out there. One, uh, Bruce Metzger, who's actually one of the writers of one of the best, Greek New Testaments, says this. He says, um, you know, there's, what did I say? 5,800, over 5,800 complete and fragmented Greek, you know, pieces of the New Testament. If you compare that to other writings in history, let's take Homer's Iliad, uh, there's only 457 papyri, two unical manuscripts, and 188 minuscule manuscripts of the Iliad. And and no one questions, well, is that the real Iliad? Like, can we be sure that this is real? Probably because it's not near as big a deal. I mean, it's just the Iliad compared to the Bible, right? But like, we can, if you compare the Bible to any other manuscript, no other manuscript gets close to as many copies as we have in the Bible. Here's further what we can determine when we look at all this. And this is what Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard say again. They say, we insist that no doctrine of Christianity rests solely on textually disputed passages. In other words, when you take all of it and you go, there's a few places where we're just just not quite sure, the percentage I've heard is over 99% that we can be sure that we have exactly what was originally written. But that less than 1% of those variations, no key doctrine of Christianity rests on those. In other words, taken all together, we can be sure from a scientific standpoint, that we have what was originally written, okay? So now let's go to Mark. So what's going on with Mark? Well, um, there's several reasons to assume that verses through 8 is what Mark wrote, and 9 through 20 is not what Mark originally wrote. Here are the reasons, some of them, Uh, and we're not going to go way into these. But one, the two oldest and very well-trusted, well-attested manuscripts, uh, if you want their actual names, it's Codex Vaticanus B and Codex Synacticus Aleph, they don't have it. It's not in them. They're, they're dated the oldest. Generally, the thinking is the older it is, the more original it is. And so they're, they're dated the oldest, and they don't have it, okay? Uh, neither do several early translations, uh, including old Latin versions, Synactic Syriac manuscript, about 100 Armenian manuscripts, and two of the oldest, Georgian manuscripts. None of them have 9 through 12 in it. Uh, Secondly, just kind of looking at the text, uh, verses 8 and 9, when put together, form what's called a non-sequitur. They don't make sense. If you look in verse 8, the subject is the women. Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. So these are the three women in verse 1. And it says in verse 8, "...and they, the women, went out and fled from the tomb..." For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then in verse 9, suddenly the subject has switched without warning to Jesus. Now, when he arose early on the next day of the week, he appeared to Mary, first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. That's also peculiar because we already know Mary Magdalene in here. And then he refers back and says, oh, yeah, by the way, Mary Magdalene, she's the one that cast out seven demons. Well, in the rest of the book, Mary Magdalene a very familiar character. We don't need to reintroduce her here. So that seems – and then even stranger is there's several words, vocabulary words, Greek words, that Mark doesn't use anywhere else in the entire book that are all of a sudden thrown in here, new words that are not part of his vocabulary, even a title for Jesus, that's not what Mark usually calls Jesus. Throughout the book, he refers to Jesus as Jesus. And in this, verses 9 through 12, he's referred to as the Lord Jesus. It's a more, it's a more like formal uh, name for him. And so when Greek scholars compare the type of writing and the new words and the non sequitur and the oldest manuscripts don't have it, It's pretty safe to assume, which is why most modern translations don't include, or include in brackets, that 9 through 20 were not the original ending to Mark, which is why we only preach through 1 through 8. Okay? Um, Also, uh, or in addition to that, though, however, 8 seems like a weird way to end the book. If you leave out 9 through 20, read it again. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End. That seems like a strange ending. And so it's pretty plausible, and Chris alluded to this last week, that probably there was something a little bit more that Mark originally wrote or intended to write, and we don't have it. I don't think it was 9 through 20, But it was something. And so here's what James Edwards says. He says, there is thus considerable reason to doubt that 16.8 was ever the intended conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. My own judgments, this is just my own opinion, James Edwards says, is that it probably was not what might have happened to the original ending, we shall probably never know. The most plausible suggestion is that it was lost due to wear and tear on the last leaf of the codex. We've all had a book that's just worn out. Starts Sometimes it's our Bible, and you start losing pages. So maybe this was on the last page, and, and before it got copied everywhere, it was gone. And maybe they didn't realize it for a while. And it's, like, it's conjecture. It's a guess. We don't know. He also says, or perhaps Mark was interrupted or died before completing it. He says, this later suggestion is a distinct possibility if Mark composed his gospel, as we suspect, in the mid-60s or the first century. It would not be surprising if Mark's name were among the martyrs of Nero's reign. Maybe Mark is about to die when he's putting all this together. Maybe that was the impetus for going, we've got to get this thing down. And so he starts writing about Jesus. He's about to finish him, take him off and kill him. We don't know. We don't know but it seems pretty logical to assume something else was there. He gives one more example, and he says it could be that Mark, if you, uh, again, this is, gets into the realm of textual criticism, but um, we're pretty sure Mark was the first gospel written, and Matthew was the second, and Luke the third, and John the fourth. And, uh, it almost follows the right order, uh, right? For, but that's not how it was put together in those, that order. But if you compare a lot of Mark's sentencing and phraseology to Matthew's, it's very clear that Matthew used Mark as a source when he was writing Matthew. So Matthew walked with Jesus. He saw the stuff, and he definitely, his is 28 chapters, he's got more content there, but there are some sentences that are exact replica between Matthew and Mark. So it could be, if we look at the end of Matthew and how it ends, that could be how Mark originally ended. Again, this is just conjecture from James Edwards. If that's the case, then maybe Mark ended Like this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Maybe that's how it's supposed to end. We don't know. Here's what we can be fairly certain of. 9 through 20 probably wasn't what Mark wrote. And nothing is in danger if it is what he wrote, and nothing is in danger if it wasn't what he wrote. And so we don't have to freak out about that. But it is kind of nice to know how all this came about. And that moves me on to the bigger uh, question of how do we know that what we have is the right thing? Right? So the Bible, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, the New Testament was composed over about 100 years. The Old Testament was composed over several thousand years, and it was all collected together. How do we know that this is really God's word? How do we know that some of the other books that are sometimes talked about the Da Vinci Code or the Catholic Church add some extra book? Like how do we know that they're not right? Okay, so I just want to kind of chat through some of that stuff. Um, the Old Testament. Uh, what's the first thing written in the Old Testament? Anybody got an idea? A conjecture. What? What? Well, they think that's maybe the oldest, oldest story, right? Um, but another good idea is this. Maybe it's the Ten Commandments. Right? You remember Moses, this is Moses uh, Exodus 32. Moses turned went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets, listen to what verse 16 says, were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So, so Moses went up on the mountain, Sinai, after they left Egypt. God said, come up here and, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And, and these Ten Commandments, it says God... This was the writing of God. So I don't know if God, like I don't know how this went down. I don't know if God like used his finger and his finger magically, magically made like stone disappear because he could do that or if it was lightning or what. But, but like Moses comes down the mountain with, with 10 commandments. This is how you're supposed to live. And it appears to be the first words of God that we have written down. And of course, Moses breaks that copy because the people rebel and he goes and gets another copy also written by the hand of God. At some point along the way, it appears that God told Moses to start writing down more than just the Ten Commandments. He gives them a whole lot of other law that the people are supposed to keep. And he even seemingly tells Moses the story of the world. This is how everything came to be about. In Deuteronomy 31, here's what it says. It says, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book... To the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. Right. So he, he the Ten Commandments resided in the Ark, the book of the law next to the Ark. And then throughout the Old Testament, you see that prophets, it was always the prophets, the prophets continued to add to the word of God I assume, at the command of God, telling the story of the Jewish people, who they were, how they had been created, and what God was doing with them, their history. And then prophets come along, and the people are always rebelling and breaking the law, and the prophets speak for God. They, they keep drawing the people of Israel back to God. You need to repent. You've been doing this But this is what the law says. This is how you're to live. You're to be my salt and light people, my representatives to the world. That's what the Jewish people are supposed to be. And the prophets are continually trying to draw them back to that. And they keep recording all of these things. Okay, so you got, if you go through the Old Testament, you got the Torah. That's the first five books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You got Joshua. Joshua wrote that. Um, You got. uh, things like First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. A lot of that seems, Samuel was a prophet. He wrote some of that. Ezra the scribe seems to be who put together some of the other writings in final form. Um, you got uh, the wisdom books. Uh, you know, David wrote most of Psalms. Uh, Proverbs wrote, uh, was written by Solomon. Song of Solomon was written by Solomon. All this put together, most of the prophets, Isaiah wrote Isaiah, Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah. And again, these were the men of God, were called by God to draw the people back to him. And they're writing down the words of God. And then right around uh, 435 B.C., the prophets die out. If you remember, the, Isra- the, the nation of Israel split into two nations, Judah and Israel. They're both still God's people, and they had a lot of bad kings, and eventually God allowed them because of their disobedience, to be invaded by other foreign armies and defeated and destroyed and taken away as exiles. And so the people of God no longer lived in their land. They lived in other lands and they were scattered. And God foretold that they were going to return to the land. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther talk a little bit about their return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the wall and the temple. But they're still kind of an invaded and owned people. Other nations rule over them even though some of them are back in the land and a lot of the people are still scattered. Right around that time, time of Esther, Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophets seem to die out. And Malachi is really the last prophet, which is why that's the last book in our Old Testament. And uh, why it's the last, because there's other writings, um, is, is a good question. Here's what I know. You can read just tons and tons and tons of, of writings from the intertestinal period by other scholars. And they all agree like, yeah, there's these other writings like the Maccabees and it talks about the history of the Jewish people and what's going on, but no one considers it scripture. Josephus, who's a famous historian from that time, he talks about all this and he talks about how after Malachi, the other writings weren't really considered Scripture. They didn't seem to be on par. They didn't seem to be speaking for God. It was more just other writings. The same way that you and I might read a good book. It's not like the Bible. Um, Wayne Grudem. Uh, Thus, after approximately 435 BC, there were no further additions to the Old Testament canon. The subsequent history of the Jewish people was recorded in other writings such as the book of the Maccabees, but these writings were not thought worthy to be included with the collection of God's words from earlier years. Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard, the Jews never believed that the other books after Malachi were inspired in the same way as the early biblical books. In fact, widespread testimony in the later rabbinic literature outlines the belief that prophecy, or at least divinely inspired writings, ceased after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the latest of the minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And if we just kind of need a trump card on top of that, because you're saying that still seems kind of like shady, Ben, here's the deal. Jesus quoted from the rest of the Old Testament, but none of the other books that are sometimes put in what's called the Apocrypha by the Catholic Church. Jesus never quotes from any of those books. But he quotes from the 39 that we have. And so, in, in kind of a redneck way, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us, right? So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament. Everything, Old Testament ends. Here's how the Old Testament ends. Malachi. Very last few verses. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Moses the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Old Testament ends with a promise of and Elijah coming now. Elijah had already lived and died. Well, actually, he'd been taken to heaven. He never died, and so it's like, okay, so is Elijah like that got taken up in a chariot of fire? Is like, he, like he coming back, or is this a second Elijah, or what's going on? But but the Old Testament ends with this like promise that Elijah is coming, and then what happens is for over four hundred years, God doesn't speak again. No writings, no new scriptures. No new prophets. Put that in our terms. That's as if God hadn't spoke since the 1500s. Silence. Which helps you understand why John the Baptist was such a big deal. Because after 400 years of an enslaved people who truly believed that a Messiah was coming and was gonna come, and who had been promised that a new Elijah was coming, and were just waiting, and they have the scriptures, but they're waiting. They hadn't heard anything, and all of a sudden, a guy who, looks, who sounds just like the prophets in the Old Testament. He's dressed like a prophet. He speaks like a prophet. He shows up in the desert and says, repent, prepare, get ready, the kingdom of God's coming. I think sometimes we think it was like a few people. No, it's like thousands of people are going out into the desert and being baptized by John the Baptist and repenting of sins and going, prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus, remember, he comes up one day and John looks at Jesus and he goes, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus is the king they've been waiting for. Jesus is the miracle worker. Jesus is the guy who doesn't side with the intelligentsia of the time or the Pharisees who were taking advantage of the people, of the people but he sides with the people and he preaches and teaches like no one's ever preached and taught. And they're all amazed because he speaks with authority and he, he backs up the authoritative words of, of, his, of his teaching by performing miracles, even raising a man from the dead, turning water into wine, healing diseases. And he is the one that all the Old Testament had been looking forward to. And as Jesus uh, is getting ready to die and rise again, He tells His his apostles, John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And Jesus seems to anticipate near the end of His life. The Holy Spirit's going to come and remind you of everything I've said and more scripture's coming. We don't know if they really understood that, but later on they did. And so when Jesus goes away, we start getting Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We get the story of the New Testament church. We get all the writings of Paul's to these churches where he's telling them how to do and what it means to follow after Jesus. We get writings from Peter. We get writings from James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, They had the same mama. Uh, We get writings from Jude, who, again, half-brother of Jesus, uh, Mary was his mom. You know, we get the revelation from John about the end of the world. And John, this was the John that walked with Jesus, one of the apostles. And the apostles seemed to basically pick up where the prophets left off. The prophets authoritatively spoke for God, and then they died away. And then the apostles walked with Jesus. And then now they physically saw him, and they authoritatively speak for God and penned the New Testament in about 100 years. And all the books that we have in the New Testament basically meet three criteria. They're all, they all have an apostolic connection. So they're connected to a person, an apostle that walked with Jesus and knew him. The exception is Hebrews because we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but everybody agrees like Hebrews is the bomb, so it's gotta be scripture, right? Uh, they all have uh, consistent theological teaching. So they're not contradictory. And they all have what's considered Catholicity. Not big C Catholic, like the Catholic Church, but the word Catholic means universal. In other words, all these writings are helpful for the church at large. And so, these lists of what was scripture seemed be, began to be put together in the New Testament church. They'd make, well, it's definitely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and Luke also wrote Acts. So we're, and it's about the New Testament church. Yep, that's got to be scripture. And then. Paul, man, I mean, Paul's, how could these not be, you know, so they start putting together, and the New Testament church is kind of talking about these scriptures and passing them around. Everybody's got a copy, and and it's it's messier than we wish it was. We wish it was, like, way more, like, scientific, but that's how God did it, and so this list start to be put together, and the New Testament starts to be put together, and so uh, in 367 AD, uh, we have the first, like, list that includes all the books that we consider New Testament, and it was... Uh, The 39th Paschal Letter of Athanasius contained an exact list of 27 New Testament books that we have today. This was the list of books accepted by the churches in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world. 30 years later, in 8397, the Council of Carthage, representing the churches in the western part of the Mediterranean world, agreed with the eastern churches on the same list. And these are the earliest final lists of our present-day canon. Okay, but it goes even beyond that. There's some else kind of... Really cool that you need to see. It seems that the New Testament authors, even as they were writing these things, understood that they were writing scripture. Second Peter 3, 14 through 16 says this. So Peter, Peter that walked with Jesus, said, Therefore, beloved, to the people he's writing to, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. See what happened there? Peter refers to the writings of Paul as scriptures, on par with the Old Testament scriptures. Script, this word "graphê" in the New Testament Greek that is translated "scriptures" is a technical term that means the Bible, <laughs> the, the, writing, the the real writings. First Timothy five eighteen, Paul does something similar. He says, "For the scripture," he's quoting Paul does, and he says, "For the scripture says." You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from the Old Testament. And, he says the Scripture, says, the labor deserves his wages. That doesn't come from the Old Testament. It comes from the writings of Luke. And so he, again, Paul puts on par Old Testament Scriptures, writings of Luke, both Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual... He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. They seem to have known by the Holy Spirit that they were writing for God. The same way the prophets of old seem to know that they were writing the very words of God. So the writings that we have, they contain the personalities of the men that wrote them. But, but the way that it's said in, in 2 Tim, Timothy that we're going to go to in a second... It says this, it says, all scripture, though written at the hands of humans, men, is inspired by God or God-breathed. And it's profitable for us, for teaching and for, for, for proof and for correction and training in righteousness that we, the people of God, may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Okay, so you, you may be saying, sitting there thinking, okay, that's great. Thanks for the history lesson, Ben. Super interesting. Kind of geek out on that stuff. This is still circular reasoning. Like, how do we know that we know that we know that we know? And I'll agree with you. It is. And at the end of the day, there is a matter of faith involved. And what I would say is the self-authenticating nature of the scriptures that comes into play. And we cannot eliminate that. We're not going to pretend like this is like the most airtight thing ever, the most scientific thing ever. There's science. But at some point, the Holy Spirit whispers to your heart as you read the Bible, this is my word. These are the very words of God. So here's how Wayne Grudem, and it's kind of a long quote, but I think it's a good one, says that. He says, the preservation and correct assembling of the canon of Scripture should ultimately be seen by believers then, not as just part of church history subsequent to God's great central acts of redemption for His people, but as an integral part of the history of redemption itself. Just as God was at work in creation, in the calling of His people Israel, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and in the early work and writings of the Apostles, so God was at work in the preservation and assembling together of the books of Scripture for the benefit of His people for the entire church age. Ultimately then, we base our confidence in the correctness of our present canon on the faithfulness of God. We just trust that God is faithful and wanted us to have the words exactly as we have them, and that's why we have them. We don't ignore all the textual criticism, but we trust God. He goes on to say, The question of how we know that we have the right books can, secondly, be answered in a somewhat different way. We might wish to focus on the process by which we became persuaded that the books we have now in the canon are the right ones. In this process, two factors are at work. The activity of the Holy Spirit convincing us as we read Scripture for ourselves and the historical data that we have available for our consideration. So we use them both. And then he goes on to say, as we read Scripture... The Holy Spirit works to convince us that the books we have in Scripture are all from God and are His words to us. It has been the testimony of Christians throughout the ages that as they read the books of the Bible, the words of Scripture speak to their hearts as no other books do. Day after day, year after year, Christians find that the words of the Bible are indeed the words of God speaking to them with an authority, a power, and and a persuasiveness that no other writings possess. Truly the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. By the way, before we move on to the sermony part right here at the end. All all the books that you hear about, like Dan Brown, things like that, Gospel Thomas, Gospel all these other They were written way later. Thomas didn't actually write that. They're never written by the person whose name they have, and the theology is way different. They're intentional frauds of a different sort, which is why they're rejected. And if you don't believe me, go read the Gospel, of Thomas. It's quite interesting and offensive. (laughs) Let's read 2 Timothy now that I talked about earlier. 2 Timothy 3, let's start actually at verse 1, because I think it feels like the situation we're in. In 2 Timothy 3, 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was to those two men. You, however, so this is Paul near the end of his life writing to Timothy. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, all scripture, Timothy, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and adequate for every good work. And then listen to what Paul says. He says, and so because of this, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate, this is such our culture, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. And Paul's about to die. And, and listen, to, listen, you can just feel his passion for the word of God. He actually says, he says in verse nine, he says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas in love with the present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books, bring the books. And he says, and above all the parchments, he's referring to the scriptures, above all the parchments, you can see his passion for the word of God. My question for us is, and for myself, is do we have that passion? Do we realize that this is inspired by God? It's God-breathed and profitable to us for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that we may know how to live and be equipped For every good work. What I want for us is. Maybe your story is just like Timothy. And you've been raised in a. In a believing home. We know that Timothy was taught by his mother and his grandmother. The Old Testament scriptures and then he met Paul and heard about how Jesus was the fulfillment and he believed, but he'd he'd heard this all his life growing up. And perhaps you've been raised in church and you've, you've heard these things all your life. Well, you need to make sure that you're receiving what's been handed down to you, but that at some point you make it your own. And it's your belief. And these are your scriptures. And that you've wrestled with God. And you've been honest about your doubts. And you've come to see that he is true and that he's right. And it, would, it reminds me of the, um, the testimony of the Samaritan woman, right? She, she meets Jesus at the well and he opens her eyes and she believes and she immediately runs back and tells all the town people, come meet a man who told me all about my life. He told me everything I ever did. And so they come, and and here's what it says in John 4. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to, to him, to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed of his word. And this is what it says. It says, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe." For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world and that's what I want for all the people here is that we would know for ourselves because we've spent time with Jesus and his word and the Holy Spirit has confirmed to us that this is the word of God and that we would have faith. And so church, are we Are we pursuing Jesus? Are we spending time with him daily in his word? Are we spending time with him in prayer? Is this literally like air? And food. That without it, we die. Without it, we starve because the God of the universe has revealed himself to us that we would know him and be saved and have eternal life and abundant life. I think I'm crying because I struggle with doubts and I too have to gird up this word and read it and have my heart Reassured, and I want that for me, and I want that for you. Romans ten nine says, "Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God." And so we hear, and the Holy Spirit gives us faith, and we cast our cares on Jesus, and we believe, and we know, and we're saved. Do you need to do that today? Do you need to believe in him for the first time? Or perhaps, do you need a little kick in the butt to go, man, I'm not treasuring this the way that I should? Because the God of the universe has given me his word, and I need to treasure it and know it and meditate on it day and night. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you speak. And we ask that you would continue to speak in this moment, whatever we need to hear. We ask that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, 24 Church has been founded upon this word. Help us to never depart from it. And fill our congregation with people that know your word and treasure your word, and are looking out to make sure that your word is preached rightly. And would we, on the basis of the word, exhort and encourage and correct each other as necessary as we cling to your word because in your word is you. You have the words of life, Jesus. So make us a people of your word. Please move in this moment. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.